Okay, let's get started. My name is Richard Parker. I'm senior fellow here at the Shorenstein Center, and it's my pleasure to welcome Jeff Maverick, a former Shorenstein uh, fellow and one of the most distinguished uh, writers on uh, economics in the United States today. Uh, I have in front of me his bio, but I'm reluctant to summarize all of it for fear that we'll lose the first 15 minutes of the session. Uh, it's a function of achievement, Joe. Uh, he's a former New York Times economics, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> a neighbor of Abraham Lincoln's during the first twelve years. <laughs> uh, he's a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books, where many of you may see his articles. He was for a number of years a, an economics columnist for the New York Times. We may also have read him. Uh, if you don't read Challenge magazine. Uh, where he's editor, uh, you're missing a <coughs> terrific source of commentary on contemporary economics and economic policy. Um, his uh, uh, prior books include a number, uh, uh, the most recent prior to this was The Case for Big Government, uh, published by Princeton, that was named a, a Penn Galbraith Nonfiction Award finalist. And uh, his new book is entitled The Age of Greed, The Triumph of Finance and the Decline of America, 1970 to the present, and is published by Alfred Knopf. Uh, I'm going to stop there. If more of you want to know more about his biography, believe me, it is on the web or available here. And I'd rather just get started with our conversation because I know it will be terrific. Jeff, thank you. Richard, thank it's you great for coming. to see you. It's great to see all of you. Thanks to Edie, of course, for arranging this. Uh, indirectly to Alex, who's suffering somewhere in Italy. Edie just told me I better uh, jack up my voice a bit, I think. Uh, and um, it's great to see old friends here. Uh, Richard didn't tell you some of my associations now, like the Roosevelt Institute and the New School and Cooper Union, but Carl Rove introduced me at a Bush Institute event, and he read all of these affiliations I had. And you know, he, he feigns very successfully enormous charm probably not. And then he said, Jeff apparently needs all of these jobs to make a living. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to be here because 10 or 11 years ago, when was it? It is that long ago when I was. Uh, what I wrote about when I was at Shorenstein was the media's support of financial deregulation. I continue to talk about that some, and of course I'm talking about the media a little more than I normally do when I discuss this book, Age of Reading, because we're at Shorenstein, and I think media did have a part. And I just have to very quickly read you a quote from the New York Times when the Glass-Steagall Act is finally ended by the Democratic administration, but with great support, of course, from Alan Greenspan. The New York Times Editorial wrote the following. Congress dithers, so John Reed of Citicorp and Sanford Weil of Travelers Group grandly proposed to modernize financial markets on their own. I'm reading from the New York Times. I'm not reading from the Citigroup uh, annual report. <laughs> Some consumer advocates oppose the merger because they fear financial behemoths inevitably threaten ordinary consumers. But one-stop financial shopping could actually protect naive investors. The fact is that Citigroup threatens no one because it would not dominate banking securities, insurance, or any other financial market. Uh, now, the New York Times has occasionally been nice to me, not recently, but, but, but uh, so forgive me for picking on them. That was the story? Sorry? That was a news story? That was an editorial favoring the end of Glass-Steagall. The model did not work, I think. The model didn't. I asked Walter Riston about the Citigroup model. The idea was we're going to diversify, we're going to cross-sell products. I think Wells Fargo had something like we're going to, I may have the wrong bag, but we're going to cross-sell eight products to each customer, eight products from our conglomerate to each customer. Why did they pick eight? Because it rhymed with great. That was the way banks were managed. In fact, these banks took on more risk, not less risk. Walter Riston, uh, who I did interview for this book, and who plays actually a major part in this book, and I think in the financial deregulation of America, did think that model made sense. 
in effect, it didn't make sense. And cross-selling became extremely controversial because that's exactly what Jack Grubman did when he worked for WorldCom, was on its board, and then told investors what a great company it was. And Jack Grubman said, that's how synergy works. That's the new Wall Street. It wasn't a conflict of interest. It was synergy. So I have a simple thesis. It seems to become more widely accepted, I think, than right after the uh, Wall Street crisis. It's that Wall Street and Washington are responsible for this crisis. And maybe the better way to put it is Wall Street in league with Washington are responsible for this crisis. It was, in my view, Wall Street greed, excess, ultimately deception in many respects, unethical practices. And I hope over time, although if it proves out, illegal practices in many respects. Finally, we're beginning to see some action on the part of the Justice Department and the SEC to take stronger action against these people. I'll talk about that a little bit because I just did a New York Review of Books piece on that. But of course, the reason I say in league with Washington was that financial deregulation was at the heart of what happened on Wall Street. And what was at the heart of financial deregulation was both vested interests, I believe, playing on the regulators, regulators often leaving their Washington positions for great jobs. Nothing new in defense, the defense industry, that's the old story in defense industry, really not that new in finance, except finance became much bigger over this period of time. I think when I graduated graduate school, there were only a few hundred employees. Herb Allison, who was head of TIAA Kraft, told me this. There were a few hundred employees at Morgan Stanley possible only if you and, and uh, now there are countless thousands uh, well into the five figures um, and maybe even into the six figures to give you an idea of how that finance expanded I know people are always talking about it being 40% in profits but I think when you look at the number of personnel in these banks it's even more stunning uh, Washington vested interests a good way to make a living when, uh, very intense lobbying efforts, $1.3 billion lobbying efforts, according to the Center on Public Integrity. Financial firms have spent on these efforts since Dodd-Frank was passed to water down Dodd-Frank, in my view. But the second issue, and one I think is very important, is there was a change in ideology in America. <coughs> and if, if there's one question, if, if there's one theme in Age of Greed, it is that. In the 1970s, the American people, in my view, changed from a moderately progressive people, influenced deeply by the New Deal and uh, the Great Society and the New Frontier of the 60s, and by the many activities that we sometimes forget, the many political activities that we sometimes forget, preceded the New Deal and lay the groundwork for the New Deal intellectually and in terms of, uh, of uh, um, powerful political groups. <clears throat> I think that changed in the 1970s. And what changed it, the catalytic uh, event, was the inflation and un unemployment, which Americans had never seen before to that degree. I believe America panicked. I believe Americans panicked under the influence of panicked policymakers as well as ideological policymakers, as well as anti-government policymakers. And also the ascension of uh, a return of laissez-faire economics led by Milton Friedman, a remarkably articulate man, but I think uh, in retrospect most people will consider his economics, even including, in my view, the natural rate of unemployment to be quite uh, simplistic. In any, in any case, for me, America changed then. And let me give you the bookends. In 1972, Ronald Reagan, second term, state governor, California, thought he hadn't left a sufficiently conservative legacy to that state. He wanted to run for president since 1968. Remarkable career, really. Remember, Ronald Reagan got his first elected office when he was 55. 
quite stunning, really. And he was, in a way, an effective governor. He compromised, not effective. Uh, didn't do what I would like to have seen done. But he was effective. But he wanted to leave a conservative legacy. So what did he decide to do? And I talk about this at same length. He decided to try to pass a constitutional amendment in California to reduce corp uh, state income taxes permanently. And they couldn't be raised again without a, a supermajority of the legislature there. He campaigned like crazy. Milton Friedman campaigned for this. Up and down the state. Put his uh, reputation on the line and lost. Californians said no to Proposition 1. Californians said we don't want to cut our state income taxes. Why? Because they actually still believed in government and a progressive role of government. It hadn't all ended with the Ronald Reagan governorships. Many thought that was the end of the Reagan career. Then we got inflation, unemployment, OPEC, budget deficits. Every time there was a budget deficit, some policymakers uh, would start talking about how government is the cause of inflation and government is the cause of all your problems. And by 1978, you know what happened. America had a tax revolt led by Proposition 13 in California, which was passed overwhelmingly to cut property taxes. But also, that was the time the Camp Roth income tax bill started to gain serious congressional support, so much support that Jimmy Carter had to respond to it, or felt he had to respond to it. The Democratic economists of that period, I believe, uh, bent over too far to start accepting these ideas led by Friedman. Uh, it wasn't an easy period. People talk about the agenda <coughs> President Obama has inherited. The agenda President Carter inherited was every bit as difficult and maybe even more difficult. That doesn't mean you couldn't have managed it better, but it was a tough battle, and he vacillated back and forth between fiscal conservatism <coughs> and uh, uh, devotion to social programs. Uh, that was the ideological shift. Into this shift, came business, came business <coughs> roaring. Uh, new think tanks, new lobbying efforts, very aggressive public relations outfits. I started at Business Week in the early 1970s. There was one very charming Southern woman who was the public relations department of Morgan Stanley back then. <laughs> Goldman Sachs had one adept guy and an assistant running public relations. Now there are armies. Of course, finance is much bigger. Let me just say something quickly, because uh, I'm, I'm only going to try to, as uh, Edie knows, it's difficult for me to talk for only 15 minutes, so I'm going to talk for 17 minutes. That's OK. But in any case, Go for 20. I think they're listening. I'm going to uh, <laughs> stop shortly and try to allow us all to have a conversation. But I like to talk about Walter Rist. And I'm, you know, because of this book and other things, I'm interviewed uh, on TV and on the radio often. And people are younger than I who interview me, a new phenomenon. <laughs> and they say, well, let me t ask you about this guy, Walter Reister. I've never heard of him. Well, many here, I'm sure I've heard of him. He was the guy who was the first national city bank in the 1960s, Rose, his first major client. Some of you may not know is Aristotle Onassis who taught him a thing or two about how to borrow against uh, future income as opposed to borrowing against assets. It was a breakthrough, really. Um, Onassis made a lot of money. And uh, somebody wrote that Riston wasn't so great about me because uh, the book's called Age of Greed. And it's biographically based. I think of it to be a bit pretentious uh, in, in the way that Emerson talked about history as biography. It's really a history, I believe. But in any case, he said, Riston wasn't so greedy. He lived in, uh, uh, oh golly, I forgot. But in any case, a middle class uh, subsidized development. The Stuyvesant Town, recently in the news, actually. And uh, why, how could Madrick be calling this guy greedy? He also turned down a million dollars a year. I don't remember whether you mentioned this from Aristotle Onassis. But I think he knew better. I think he knew he couldn't live with Onassis. In any case, he did eventually move into the United Nations Plaza along with Alan Greenspan and Johnny Carson and many other luminaries. Uh, they all had separate apartments, mind you. Uh, so I don't know if he wasn't that greedy. Anyway, Walter Riston. So Regulation Q existed. Regulation Q put a, a limit, a restriction on how much 
the big commercial banks could pay their savers. Remember, since the New Deal, savers were, uh, money was federally insured, probably, I think there are many successful New Deal financial programs, but FDIC is probably the most successful. And, uh, um, but it put a restriction on how much you could pay savers. Now, this may seem a little bit silly in retrospect, but it was quite a bright idea if flexibly enforced. In fact, Adam Smith talks about it a little bit in, uh, in The Wealth of Nations. He talked about how you can't let these institutions pay anything you want, because pretty soon they'll be paying <coughs> savers anything they want and be investing this money uh, irresponsibly. Well, that's why we had <laughs> Regulation Q. Walter Riston is the guy who basically knocked it down. I, lead, I read some accounts of uh, uh, deregulation. The history of deregulation re really began in the 1970s. It didn't. Now, Bill Clinton was a big player in deregulation, but it really began back then. A very quick story about Walter Riston. He knew his institution's future depended on his being able to attract more funds. He had an idea, one of his people had an idea, a negotiable CD. We could give these big CDs to big corporations and big investors. I don't remember the minimum that it may have been twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars, and we could pay a higher rate to get their money than Regulation Q. But to be negotiable, you needed a secondary market. So he went to Discount Corp, a big trading company then, a big a company in the money markets. Discount Corp said, "Yeah, we'll make a secondary market in this." We're talking the early '60s. But you have to underwrite us. You have to give us the capital to do this. Riston went back and said he must have known this is some kind of violation of Glass-Steagall. We're underwriting securities. Glass-Steagall said commercial banks couldn't underwrite. Uh, but, and his lawyer said, well, we got to ask the Fed about this. Riston, I don't know if he even took a night to think about it. Riston said, no, let's not ask the Fed. Let's just do it and make the Fed stop us. That was the Riston way, and it succeeded. The CD came up, uh, existed. I don't want to say it was all bad. I think the Fed could have more flexibly enforced Regulation Q. But in the end, the end of restrictions on the ability of commercial banks to make money was one of the main factors in making the, in allowing them to become too big to fail. Now, people put their money in money market funds and elsewhere non-regulated areas. But of course, a, a, wise Wall Street, a wise Washington might have realized, well, we may need some regulations there too. And they didn't. The regulatory attitude and, invest, and vested interest made them look the other way. One last point. Somebody submitted a piece to, to challenge the other day, and they said, you, let's look at history. We only get the regulations we need after a crisis. So we got the regulations of the New Deal, the SEC, Glass-Steagall, uh, included in those FDIC uh, <coughs> disclosure issues for the SEC and other matters, and housing regulations as well, uh, which were totally new and led, by the way, to a very stable housing market for 30 years. But, um, and now we only get regulations after the fact. We got Sarbanes-Oxley after Enron and WorldCom. We, are we have Dodd-Frank after this crisis, and, he and the New Deal, of course. But I think there is a more important lesson there in this period in which I do blame Washington. We didn't get regulations after every crisis. We had a major crisis in 1994, a major derivatives crisis. Many in Congress wanted regulations. The Clinton administration, with the advice of Larry Summers and Bob Rubin, <coughs> nixed it. We had major crises again. You know them, 1997, 1998. The Asian crisis, long-term capital management, and the Russian crisis. No serious regulatory changes after that. To the contrary, and this is a story I don't have to bother telling, the Clinton administration, along with Alan Green, nixed the attempts by Brooks Lee Bourne to regulate the derivatives business. And just the other day, I was talking to a very conservative man who said to me, I don't believe in regulation, but it's crazy not to regulate derivatives, having <laughs> trading them transparently and requiring some kind of margin requirement or some kind of reserve against credit default swaps. Uh, uh, we don't even know how many of them trade. 
So I, I'll stop there so we can have a bit of a conversation. And uh, needless to say, I have a few other things to say. But I think that got the point across. Bringing it back, however, for one second to the press, they weren't around for much of this. They came alive during the crisis. I think some of them were doing very good jobs. But they weren't, this, by and large, on balance, supported deregulation. There were some stories when a subprime bubble burst in the late 1990s and early 2000s, but there wasn't much. There were some <coughs> stories about bad mortgages, not much effort, and there was no understanding of, uh, uh, of the nature of the risky level of securities issued by major firms, Citigroup, <coughs> Morgan Stanley, Goldman, Merrill Lynch, Bear Stearns, and so forth. No understanding of uh, collateralized debt obligations. We probably shouldn't blame the press too much on that, because I don't think economists understood yeah. that, and I don't think uh, the New York Federal Reserve and its president at the time had one darn idea what was going on in collateralized debt obligations. And if there is one uh, black mark that should stand out, it is that how could they not have looked into what was happening with these extremely risky extremely <coughs> misleadingly rated securities. I'll stop there. Okay, we've touched on a couple of issues here. Uh, I want to ask the first question, the privilege of the chair, which is you've named three uh, legs to the stool. Um, Wall Street, Washington policymakers and politicians, and the press, but it seems to me there's a fourth leg, which is the change in academic economics that went on in the 1970s and thereafter. And you haven't mentioned that yet. I don't want you to divert all the way over, but we're at an academic institution and there are lots of debates rising now about the nature of the neoclassical synthesis yeah. uh, and its legatees. So well, do you have I think a comment? <coughs> oh, sorry. It was on this list. I did <laughs> actually <laughs> mention it in a clause <laughs> in, in my chat here. Uh, I do think um, the academic mainstream moved significantly towards a laissez-faire attitude in economics and the revival of uh, neoclassical economics. Um, uh, nobody, I hate to pick, you know, everybody picks on Larry Summers. I'd like to say I hate to pick on Larry Summers. <laughs> uh, it's very hard not to, because he represents the shift in what used to be a sort of dominant Keynesian economics, uh, which was his birthright in a way, as you well know, that dominated major academic institutions, except a few places like Chicago, uh, uh, in the 60s through the 70s. But Summers made many comments to suggest the nature of the change, outright explicit comments after he left the Treasury Secretary and before he became president of Harvard about how we have to rely much more on markets. Uh, we learned that industrial policy doesn't work. He was a leading believer in deregulation, a leading <coughs> believer, I believe, that speculation stabilizes markets. In my view, though, uh, economists did have a central role. You know, th there's always this question, do economic ideas really affect policy, or do the times affect economic ideas? I think the times often affect economic ideas. But I'm with Keynes in that famous quote on this, that you're often, uh, these policymakers are often slaves of a defunct economist. Right or wrong, remember, some people leave at that. Sometimes <laughs> Keynes thought they were right, but often wrong. And I think uh, economics ideas had a very serious effect. Every financial excess, uh, I'm going to, I know Edie's already cautioned me about my long answers. <laughs> boring. <laughs> She's loving it. Uh, um, every financial interest, in my view, of the uh, pre-2007 period was somehow or other supported by a mainstream economic idea that was widely accepted. There were exceptions. One of them, uh, sitting here. one mainstream economist sitting here is one of the exceptions. He's wicking fine. <laughs> but um, uh, but um, have plenty of time to answer. Uh, Full semester. Yeah. But in any case, um, 
think about that. The fish in markets theory, that by and large said markets are usually stable and, and fairly accurate. Uh, you know, there were strong forms and weak forms in this, but think about that. Uh, in, uh, uh, um, acceptance of n the n lack of regulation of derivatives because we believe speculation actually stabilizes markets and leads to uh, decent prices. Of course it can, but it very, very often does not. Uh, those are all supported by theories. Very high CEO compensation was uh, supported by an efficient markets theory. The, the most the important advocate was Michael Jensen at the Harvard Business School. But he came up with that before he got promoted to Harvard Business School. I think he was at Rochester. But he's a Chicago alumnus. The idea was because stock prices accurately reflect the future, give stock options to give stock options to CEOs and they will manage with great intelligence. In fact, they manage to bolster the short, their short-term profits and push up the stock price and get themselves very, very rich. Uh, and on and on. I mean, the justification for hedge funds and the lack of regulation of hedge funds is outrageous. There's an economic idea. But I do want to say one last thing about this. Even by conservative economic principles, the excesses of Wall Street were outrageous, and it's pretty outrageous that mainstream economists did not rise and, and shout. And mainstream economists do rise and shout, especially about issues like free trade. They've shown enormous influence in the getting NAFTA passed and, uh, and the WTO. Some of it, in my view, correct. Much of it, not correct. So they did have influence. But they should have complained about asymmetric incentives people getting paid to take risk and not having to bear losses, the lack of transparency in the derivatives markets, the conflicts of interest built into the system both in places like Citigroup and the ratings agencies. These violated conservative, laissez-faire economic principles. And economists were basically, as a, as a public voice, nowhere. Okay, I'm gonna start with student questions first. So, students. Kennedy School or other related institutions. <laughs> Speak now, hands up, or we'll go. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I have a question. Uh, I'm a national security fellow, and so, of course, I am looking at this from the perspective of the current financial crisis has security implications and so forth. And, and I'm also uh, interested in uh, Marx's ideas and uh, about uh, capitalism. And I'm wondering, is there anyone looking at uh, whether capitalism is really regulatable or whether we ought to be looking beyond uh, something, you know, beyond capitalism or, I mean, it's almost like capitalism is considered like uh, aging. You know, it's not really good, but it, there's no other way of, around it. You know, it's just going to happen. Capitalism's going to be here. Well, you're probably aware of that essay Nouriel Roubini wrote in the FT and it's inflammatory way of saying it looks like Marx may have been right about some things. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't, I, I'm sure uh, uh, the Schumpeter wasn't here right now. I'm sure that, the, I, I'm not, a, you know, let me confess, I'm not aware of specific research. I'm sure it would be easy to find specific research. I think the Marxist community has been, academic and intellectual community, has been reactivated. I think they do have a lot to add to the conversation, and I think we should start listening. I think uh, in some ways, you know, they're classical economists, so they talk about, you know, so some things don't make sense. I mean, if profits are high, I would think most Marxists would say business should be investing, uh, and they're not, you know, probably. Right, that's, lots one, of corporate that's one question I had also. Is you let me, let have, me, can I hold you to that sure. one? Make sure in, in any case, I think there's a lot of reason to <clears throat> come back. At, at right over here, and then right over there. And then I'll come back over there. Yes, sir. Uh, so Identify yourself. Uh, sorry, I'm an MPP1 in the Kennedy School. And um, I just you mentioned Adam Smith uh, about his uh, how we might see the, the financial crisis. And there's an article by Sen in the New York books as well about what we learn about capitalism, this was moving on from that question, about what we can learn about capitalism from this crisis. And I was just wondering about the kind of motives that in incentivize people to behave. So do you think do you think that ethics can play a role in changing how we behave or how we deal with kind of 
financial shortcomings, or do you think it's just external regulations, or do you, do you think like internal motivations are important? Yeah, I think they're pretty much related. I think ethics began to decline at the same time regulations began to decline. I think there is a, a cultural component in what happened to business. I think uh, people are not perfect rational specimens, so they're influenced by the culture around them. If everybody else is getting really rich, it's much harder to say, my, my gosh, that's unethical, I'm not going to get rich. If that kind of practice becomes accepted and is not called unethical, if we don't have any serious moral grounding, so, uh, I think um, I think it becomes reinforced. So I think there was an ethical lapse that went hand in hand <coughs> with an inter this intellectual lapse. Uh, I think ethics can matter, yeah. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Matt Bavaluco, and I'm an MPA1. So thank you for coming here and for talking with us. I unfortunately didn't have a chance to read your book, but I do have a question about the efficacy of government regulation of financial markets. So because financial markets are so complex, it just seems that any effort by a government or by any institution outside of that arena to control what it's supposed what's supposed to happen in those outcomes would be very it's very difficult to do. And I just go back to Sarbanes Oxley. So once you split research from investment banking, you effectively close the IPO window. You closed off a lot of public market opportunities to Main Street public investors. And now you have situations like <coughs> Facebook that have created tens of billions of dollars of value for the most connected private equity funds and hedge funds and private markets that are totally closed off from normal investors. And I'm sure that wasn't what Sarbanes-Oxley set out to do. So I, I'm just not sure that uh, a government regulatory um, uh, policy will, would be able okay. to address the financial crisis. You know, I, th that's become an idea of the moment. And for the most part, I don't buy it. I think uh, regulation can work. If you have to, I don't know why hedge funds, frankly, I don't know why hedge funds are not regulated. The statistical evidence is allegedly that the hedge funds, you know, you know this for some of you, I'm sure do capital, uh, you know, capital asset pricing theory and stuff like that. The statistical evidence is that they, they manage well the hedge funds, right? Uh, they have high alphas. I happen to believe probably those high alphas have to do things that are not always ethical. But the investors don't do very well because investors <coughs> buy and sell at the wrong time and because the fees are so high. And the, you know, so why aren't we, I'm getting back to this IPO issue. So I think, that, I, I think the idea that people can always get around innovation is a highly overstated, and therefore innovation is futile, is, is a, a simplistic idea, number one. Number two, innovations that, that uh, are hard to regulate probably sh should be disallowed. Maybe there should be no CDO at all. I'm very inclined, Rubini argues that, I'm very inclined to think there should be no CDO squared at all, no synthetic CDOs. So we can prohibit uh, investment products if they can't be regulated. So I think that idea reflects this whole ideological mindset we've had. Uh, and I think we can change it. In the corner, and then we come back to the issue. I would like to know how this wave of deregulation in the U.S. has influenced uh, the global markets, especially in view of rising state capitalism in China and enlargement of the EU. Well, I think, uh, you know, obviously China chose a different <coughs> model capital controls and so forth. We, our re deregulation, pardon me, seriously influenced much of Asia, as you know, because we got people <laughs> to get rid of their capital controls, a reflection of deregulation and laissez-faire policy and a sort of a corollary to free trade, free capital flows. Uh, one of the things they learned from that, because it didn't work out, they got, attracted all that hot money under the supposition their currencies would always somehow retain their value against the dollar. They got all this hot money, and the currencies began to fall, the money fled. They had very severe recessions under the heavy hand of the IMF. Uh, and what did they learn? They learned they better start, uh, they better start building up their foreign reserves. That's a big, uh, a big lesson China 
learned uh, it was in some way a consequence of deregulation. But I think a lot of it, you know, I think what's happened since I was seven is that a lot, and I, you find a lot of people saying this, isn't it? A lot of people are adopting different models of capitalism, not that there weren't always different models, which include a lot more regulation. Hi, my name is John Zimmerian and MP1, and I have a question for you about your view on the future, what is it ahead of us, because obviously we haven't learned our lesson. So my question would be, if you were President of the United States, what would you do right now to make sure that it doesn't happen again? What is it to do, and wow. what do you think is ahead of us? <laughs> well, here's the only good news. Here's the only good news. I find myself so pessimistic now that I must be wrong about something. You know, there must be something good out there that I'm not seeing. But I, 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 I don't. I, first of all, we should be stimulating the economy through spending. I think the tax cuts are fine. I think the jobs program is fine. But I would like to see more spending than tax cuts. I think there's a very serious possibility of a second recession, which will only make matters worse. And I think. Uh, uh, um, much of the Tea Party issue, there's a, a tendency to assume that politics will be stable in America. I think much of the Tea Party is motivated by extreme economic frustration. Uh, um, uh, I would, so I would be spending a lot more. I would be probably, I'd probably have a direct jobs program. I'd have the federal government hiring people like we did during the New Deal. That New Deal program didn't even then go far enough. But it helped significantly. And uh, uh, I would not be talking about balancing the budget in the very near future. I would be very much trying to teach America, which I think this president has failed to do, that there's a time and place for these things. That the main problem with the budget is a long-term problem. And it's the main problem with, in the long run is health care costs, which will drive up Medicare and Medicaid. And the idea that we're going to somehow balance the budget now on the backs of the elderly, and and these programs do help the poor, obviously Medicaid, is just outrageous to me. I would like to make one statement because I'm debating a couple of people next week who are going to make that claim. Um, uh, Social Security and Medicare are two of America's greatest achievements of any kind. And some idea that we can simply undermine them or pull out the pegs in order to uh, balance the budget when we are about the lowest taxed rich country in the world, I find very difficult. So in the long run, higher taxes, reform health care. All our energy has to be put in that. You can't, and you can use Medicare to help reform taxes. And the other issue is financial uh, re-regulation hasn't done nearly enough. In my view, the banks have to be broken up along product lines. Those conflicts of interest have to be eliminated. And we've got to somehow get the rules written that Dodd-Frank had written, and Wall Street lobbies are effectively watering it down. And I'd like to see the president fighting about that. He's got a lot of battles to fight. Over here. Hi, I'm Lucas Schuller, I'm a mid-career student. Um, <coughs> I think the checks on the greed of Wall Street can be letting firms fail. And I'm wondering what you think the uh, moral hazard was that we created in 2008 by bailing out select firms and now, now that they've gotten bigger and possibly more systemic than ever before. You know, the great book on that is the Charles Kendallberger book, which uh, the history of financial crisis. And he tries to deal with that issue. What is the trade-off between moral hazard and allowing a financial crisis to get even wor worse and creating a serious depression? I think. Um, the, oddly enough, the Bush Treasury and Bernanke by the end of 2007, in very broad terms, made the right decision to bail out in a big way, especially Bernanke. I don't think the details of TARP were <coughs> correct. I think probably some banks should have been broken up at that point. More restrictions on what they do, more restrictions on compensation. Uh, at least management should have been removed. Uh, but. I think that the price of moral hazard, one had to pay, pay the price of moral hazard for saving the banking system. It would have gotten much worse. And I also tend to think moral hazard is exaggerated as an issue. It's inevitable moral hazard. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
My, my name is Fazli Siddiq, and I'm a, an economics professor at uh, Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And this year, um, I'm Malcolm Wheeler Fellow at the Kennedy School. Uh, now, Dalhousie has a strong uh, Keynesian tradition, so I'm obviously biased, and my you know comments might be you know, somewhat um, uh, very consistent with your own. Um, so, and your points are um, very well taken. But I was thinking, if um, we are missing something here that is part of the domestic issues that you're alluding to, um, a function of a broader <coughs> problem that originates or has its underpinnings more on international dynamics. So when you look at sluggish economic growth, high unemployment, uh, a long uh, sort of a, a recession, maybe not technically so, but the inability to be able to get out of very low economic growth for a sustained period. Is, does this have something to do what's happening in the rest of the world? And in particular, does it have anything to do with the near abdication of manufacturing, for example, in much of the Western world, Canada and US included, of course? Does it have anything to do with um, the relative wages being what they are, and a shift of, you know, even call centers, for example, moving to India and so forth. And I say this largely because the projections of the next couple of decades will mean an ine inevitable and irreversible shift of the way that things are done in much of the Western world, uh, notably the United States. And I say this because the IMF is now projecting that sometime between 2025 and 2030, uh, China's GDP will exceed that of the United States. By 2050, less than 40 years, India's GDP will be almost tied to that of the United States. And if you look at the top 10, most of the European countries are nowhere to be seen. Uh, Mexico <coughs> will be high up there, Brazil, uh, South Korea, and so on and so forth. So instead of looking inwardly, and instead of putting all the, um, I, I guess, the blame on domestic policies, deregulation, and so forth, and they have their place, no doubt, is part of the problem international, and an inevitable restructuring of the economic balance worldwide that is the cause of all this. So a larger question you want to add on to that one, or is that <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no, uh, obviously these are profound issues, and I, I'm, uh, it would be foolish for me to give you a firm answer on all those. But yes, the internet, the, the American job machine broke down, I believe, before the 2000s, but it was surely broke in the, broken in the 2000s before 2007. Part of this is a globalization issue uh, uh, and a rise of China issue and so forth and so on. Um, uh, wages by, by and large stagnated or grown slowly in America for 40 years. Uh, that partly led to the debt, of household debt, you know, the interrelationship and all of that that led to the crisis. But yeah, I think uh, you're right. In You're right generally. Uh, I mean, you said a lot of things, so it's hard. I mean, much of what you said was right, let me put it that way. If we get out of this crisis, I think we have we face a very different world than we understand, and a lot of that has to do with the rise of China and the rise of India. We may have some regional economic zone in the Middle East led by Turkey, which is, these kinds of issues are much in the news today. One reason I believe the EU and the Euro have to be saved is that I actually like Europe and what they've stood for at least since the Enlightenment. And I want to see those values preserved, and I'd like to see them be a strong economic entity. I don't think U.S. policy has caught up with this reality, mm -hmm. that we won't be able to call the shot. Certainly, the, uh, it's hard to blame the Obama administration much on this, but I don't think they deal with the rise of Brazil very well. I don't think there's a multilateral approach to China, which we're going to need. Uh, so I think you raise a very important issue, and, and you know, other people might to what extent, uh, I'm sorry, Mark McKinnon, Shorenstein Fellow, 
welcome. To what extent do the public company auditing firms play a role in all this? And if so, are there particular reforms that you recommend there, like audit rotation? Yeah, I do. I, you know, I haven't worked sp specifically or written specifically on that. Obviously, in the 1990s, they played an extreme role. We had one accounting, uh, one accounting um, uh, scandal after another. The 1990s, I argue, in this book, and it, it shows you the lack of self-awareness <coughs> in America. It was probably the most corrupt period in finance, at least since the 1920s. And it may have given the 1920s a run for its money. Uh, you, you couldn't get a job on Wall Street unless you, you explicitly lied. I mean, you, had, you were paid to lie. I'm, I'm not making this up. People eventually admitted it. But uh, um, uh, so I think, you know, I, I don't have a specific, I, I shouldn't go deeply into that right now. But, uh, you know, the, it's hard to argue whether auditors are a bigger problem than ratings agencies. So there's a lot to correct. Um, Jeff, welcome back. Uh, Tom Patterson from the yeah. Kennedy School faculty, and uh, I was close to Jeff when he was here. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I kind of love the, um, the oxymoron of talking about uh, theory-driven policy in the same sentence that you're talking about politicians and journalists, uh, or anything but kind of theory-driven and more kind of event-driven, case-driven. I wonder if you could take us back to, and I don't know the history of this, but take us back to airline deregulation and as an entering wedge and where the Democrats were on that, where the press was on that, and how important that kind of opener was in terms of providing politicians with leverage for making the argument in a way that they tend not to make arguments about, about theory. As you know, Senator Kennedy was very much in favor of airline deregulation and pretty much opposed to financial <coughs> deregulation. So one thing didn't necessarily lead to the other. But I think in that period of time, there were many issues that Democrats acceded to in allowing this, this reinvigorated laissez-faire model to come back. I, I don't trace the airline deregulation as a central issue, but I may be wrong. I, I, a lot, there was other deregulation in that period, and Carter ultimately uh, technically did away with regulation too, although for the most, you know, for the most part it was uh, financial deregulation. But Carter was very interested in balancing the budget. He was very worried about that. He, uh, he was very, very concerned about inflation. He did not you know, I would like to have seen a policy of patience and, uh, you know, not rapid growth, but moderate growth in that period. So I think inflation played an enormous role. The surveys showed that people were more worried by about 1976 and 1977, public opinion surveys, were more worried about inflation than losing their jobs, even though the unemployment rate was relatively high then. So I, I'm not so sure airline deregulation was the wedge in. I think in retrospect, I, you know, I'm ambivalent about airline deregulation. I think airline deregulation with some regulations <laughs> might have been the way to go in the airline industry. But uh, did it really open the door to massive deregulation? I think the Reagan victory might have really opened the door. Um, you know, he, one agency after another, he basically uh, emasculated, antitrust, for example. And Democrats were part of that anti, you know, there's a lot of attitude that companies should be bigger than economies of scale and all that, but uh, uh, I'm not sure it was airline deregulation per se, and I, as I said, I could be wrong. But I do, I do disagree with this. I do think journalists and policymakers can be slaves to I ideology and theory, uh, which it was my point about John Maynard Keynes. So, um, um, I'm Fritz Merriman, the faculty at Duke, and a fellow, the Shortstone Fellow this semester. I really enjoyed the, your, your, your talk about the novel the book. But my question really is also, of, uh, in some ways, follows on this. It's about ideas and the power of ideas. And the question, the, the history, as you told uh, it, which sounds about right to me, is that at this moment of crisis in the, in the 70s, Andrew Friedman and then Reagan saying, Government's not the solution, it's the problem, and this very strong the uh, government deregulatory idea. The question I have is what accounts 
What accounts for the failure of the of the left or traditional ideas to counter that in any significant way? And it was it a loss of nerve, or fatigue? Was, was it yeah, well, crowding out in the academy? I or think there are going to be a lot of opinions about that. To some I would not argue. Some people would argue that theory, the older theories, were wrong in some way. I mean, Summers was kind of making that statement, or that new evidence and new statistical models he missed out of those. But um, I would say it was a lack of nerve and fatigue. I would say old-fashioned Keynesianism still made sense in the 1970s. It's just very hard to apply in an inflationary period. <coughs> Keynes was writing in a deflationary period, so he really didn't pay that much attention to inflation. But it was applicable. Uh, you know, the famous, uh, both Galbraith and Arthur Oaken commented famously when, when I know Arthur Rubin is probably know John Kenneth Galbraith is, that Keynes only worked in downturns. You know, nobody tried to step on the brakes uh, in upturns. I think Oaken said the new economics has been defeated by the old politics. So I think there was a fatigue, but I also think there were political issues. People ultimately wanted a very quick answer to inflation and a Keynesian or a more moderate approach uh, and somewhat the structural approach would have taken time. And it would have been nice to have a leader who could have talked about that. But I, don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that uh, Volcker, the Volcker policy is necessary, the harsh policy. Uh, and somebody wrote that, I wrote that somewhere and somebody wrote, I eccentrically argue that Volcker's policy is not the right policy. It shows you the state of conventional wisdom in America. In the back here. Um, you mentioned the fact that a lot of, um, on my, my name is Max, I'm an MPP one, Kennedy School. Um, you mentioned the fact that <clears throat> economists didn't pay attention to the ideas of asymmetric information, distorted incentives, these types of issues that occurred in the banking industry prior to 2007, prior to the crisis. Um, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Why is that the case? Was there a lack of, um, were they kind of, do you think mainstream economics, like the idea, uh, the idea <coughs> people came up with, they were kind of pushed that way because of culture, or the, you know, that um, preeminent theories that you were talking about before? Do you think part of it is due to, um, you know, the fact that it's easier to see this in retrospect? Do you think? Can, can you talk a little bit about why you think? Yeah, that's it. That's a very broad subject. To some degree, it has to do with the sociology of academia. But almost all these ideas I criticize had some value, especially early on. Effic take efficient markets theory, which was so abused. It came alive and became important, by and large, when mutual funds, which invest money, uh, were, were investing money for people in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, I'm talking about that capital asset pricing model and so forth. What it suggested was these professional managers couldn't really manage your money. So don't give them eight and a half percent, which was actually what mutual funds were charging at the top. It was called the load. And don't give them this big management fee. There was something quite useful about that. Some of those uh, pioneers, you know, I still think Bill Sharp is a pretty cool guy. But uh, it got abused. So I think in each of these cases, the, the germs of these ideas or beneficial, but then I do think they succumb, frankly, to uh, the political, the ideology I'm talking about, the political turn of the times, opportunism, and also <coughs> I think many of the simple ideas are uh, much more easily quantifiable and built into models than more complex, less homogeneous explanations. So that you got extremist, extremist views are seriously taken seriously, and might like rational expectations and uh, real business cycle theory, because you could present a, a pretty sophisticated quantitative argument uh, that, you know, I'm, uh, in any case, that that's part of, those are some of the issues. Over here. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that, um, that, that criminality played a, a role, and that was a part of the debate that was that was a little bit lagging. You, you mentioned you uh, just finished an article for the New York Review of Books that, that looked at that question. Um, much of our discussion here has been about ideas and politics. 
Um, but could you share a little bit about fraud and, and just blatant criminal activity, and also perhaps how ideas and politics helped create an environment that allowed that to happen or go um, unenforced? Well, <coughs> criminal act, whether it's criminal or not, tends to be determined by the laws. The criminal law, law regarding white collar crime, with the exception of insider trading, and I'm not a lawyer, so uh, is not very clear, especially as applies to might be uh, what we would consider unethical practices. But by and large, um, uh, I believe investors were actively deceived by several categories of players. Uh, the most important of them were the Wall Street firms that sold securities that were significantly riskier than they purported them to be or even disclosed that they were. The rating agencies, there's lots of testimony now and lots of emails if you're interested in the Senate subcommittee, uh, what's it called, something on investigative PSI, uh, the investigative arm of the Senate. There's a fair amount of stuff in the FCIC financial crisis inquiry report, uh, emails about the knowledge these people had, both at the ratings agencies and the securities firms. The, um, the mortgage writers themselves, the people who sold mortgages to homeowners, were outrageous. But the fact is, by and large, they were always outrageous. So there was one report that 10, there were 10,000 mortgage salesmen in Florida who already had criminal records. All of the <laughs> criminal records, most of the, the financial crime records, not just stealing a candy bar. So probably if they were stealing a candy bar, they wouldn't have been able to sell. <laughs> um, so, and the, the fact that Greenspan and others ignored warnings from the FBI, they thought there was an epidemic of mortgage fraud is extraordinary. So we're just catching up, we're just catching up to this. Um, partly it's because the laws are fairly ambiguous and it's hard. You can always wiggle out of it because you can say, well, I really didn't fully know the markets were going to collapse. Kind of thought so, but I can't, but who knows? Markets can go. That became a defense with the Bear Stearns or hedge fund managers. So, but I think it really, um, in the end, it, it will take much more. Uh, uh, frankly, let me put it this way: it would take more courageous prosecutors, and they tend to. And when they only seek civil uh, actions, which is by and large what's happened, very few criminal actions. A criminal. A criminal uh, case was just dropped against Washington Mutual by the Justice Department after hundreds of interviews and lots of money. After <coughs> uh, I think they have to start taking some chances. They do these light, um, they, they accept light, relatively light fines because they don't <coughs> want to go to trial in, in these civil cases because it will cost some money and they're afraid they'll lose. So they brag, the SEC brags about a $550 million fine that Goldman Sachs pays. Two things. That year, Goldman Sachs made eight and a half billion dollars in profit, and none of the bankers paid that those funds. The shareholders paid those funds, which is another story about financial firms being public companies. In the back, this will be the last question. I'm going to have to wrap up. So, thank you. I'm a <coughs> systems analyst and a patterns analyst. And I have some friends on Wall Street, and over the last 20 years, digital has dramatically changed the emotional and, and rational landscape, uh, you have high-speed trading at the end of the day, the last hour, and wild swings that you can see every day. <coughs> you have trades that aren't made by people anymore, that are very opportunistic. And it used to be value creation, and now it seems to be transaction skimming, if you will. Um, it makes it a lot harder for people in the news media to cover. It's become a massive, complex system. And my friend, the mathematician, says nobody really understands how all the parts connect exactly. It's like a complex system where you just reach in and you grab for a pound of something. Who's looking in the government or elsewhere in academia at mapping that as a system the way MIT engineers do? They do systems engineer analysis. I haven't, just haven't seen any of the conversation come up at all, and I'm hoping that well, you know, I don't know enough about it, but there is a new project, I, I don't even remember which federal agency, which is going to build a, a real-time trading oversight operation, which I would love to see, because I actually believe, uh, that, I'll tell you one story I have in the book, a major, very well-known hedge fund manager said he would never hire a money manager or from Goldman Sachs or a trader from Goldman Sachs 
Why? He said, because they have so much information. They have the big board. They have all those trades. So much information from their trading desk. So much information about private companies. He doesn't know how they made their money. Inside information, front running, um, manipulation of the markets. Um, uh, so I don't, I don't think we're near when we're talking about uh, the woman left <coughs> talking about regulating these markets. I think they're rife with game playing, and that's why we've seen so much. And that really, be, that transactions orientation really began in the 1970s. Ironically, it partly began when you, when fixed commissions, when commissions were deregulated, because they were sort of making a good gentleman's see living on those fixed commissions. Once the commissions went down, they had to generate transactions like crazy. This was the mid-1970s. By the same token, that was the rise of the derivatives market. The, the equities market was flat on its back for many, many, you know, from something like 1969 <coughs> to 1982. You needed other kinds of transactions, and, and currencies were floated in that period. There were all kinds of opportunities to generate income through trading strategies and maybe extra legal. That didn't strategies. necessarily build value. Well, I don't think it built value. The, you know, this, a guy wrote a book about hedge fund managers, and he talks about some of these nefarious practices. It still denies they were nefarious. But they're all worth it because they add liquidity. All these billions of dollars to hedge fund managers are worth it because they add this much liquidity in a good market. How much liquidity do they add in the bad market? It's fair weather liquidity. It's not poor weather liquidity. So, Jeff Madrick, thank you very much. Oh,